Good morning. Oh boy, is that how is this how this is gonna go? Is this it? Is this it? All right. So hey, so the church that I grew up in, um, they talked back to the preacher, not like mean things. You know, it was only nice. They didn't like they weren't like boo, get off the stage. You know, they didn't do that kind of stuff. Um, but the church I grew up in, they would talk back to the preacher a little bit. So let's do this. Little, we're gonna try this again because this is gonna. I promise. I promise. I will preach better if you smile at me. If you blink, like it'll go a lot better. If, uh, if, if maybe there's something that is said that you're like, man, that's really good. You can be like, man, that's really good. Or like, keep preaching. Or, you know, you can, you know, a little encouragement will go a long way. But uh, good morning. There's my people. Good to, there they are. Um, it really is so good to be, be here and get to, get, to, get to preach this morning. I love Pastor Greg and Beth, don't you? No, you love Pastor Greg and Beth. Yeah, we love them dearly, and um, I am. Y'all are lucky to have them. I'm just gonna tell. I'm just gonna tell you like it is right now. Um, you are so lucky to have pastors like Greg and Beth, and they love you dearly. And um, this team here um, is a phenomenal, phenomenal team. And so I'm so excited to get to preach this morning, and excited for what God's wanting to speak. And um, if your mom or your dad drug you here this morning, what's up? Glad you're here too. Um, would love to have you come hang out at 180 sometime. That's our, our youth ministry here. It's a great group of students. We just had glow night, which was super dope and did some like, like glow in the dark stuff. Uh, it was fun. It's good days, good times, good times. So would love to have you come hang out. Christopher's doing such an incredible job of leading our student ministry team and, um, love him dearly as well. And so just excited. Hey buddy, good to see ya. Why don't you stand up? And, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. But I, I'm not kidding about loving Christopher. I'm, I'm kidding about him standing up. So love you dearly, friend. Um, but yeah, so excited. So hey, let's jump into the text today. We're going to look at Ruth and this story here. Um, and and uh, this truly, truly is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture because uh, it gives me hope in following Jesus. I need, I need hope in my relationship with the Lord. I need hope. And he gives us such great hope through this story of Ruth. So if you've got your Bibles or your phone or whatever, it'll be on the screen as well. We're going to jump into Ruth chapter 1. And um, I just want to give you a little context before we get started. Because this story, I think one of the reasons this story is so powerful is because of who Ruth is and who Ruth represents. And you're going to hear me say it about 12 times, maybe 15 times, that Ruth was not from around here. She was not an Israelite. She was not in God's family tree. She was a Moabite woman. <clears throat> but yet, what we see later in Matthew is that Ruth is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus because Ruth is adopted in, she's brought into the family, not adopted, literally, she's, that was incorrect. She was not adopted in. She's redeemed back in. Uh, to the family and um, of God. And Ruth is the great grandmother of King David. King David who came from the shepherd's field and goes, you know, with the whole slingshot deal and Goliath, the really big guy. Um, Ruth, Ruth is redeemed to the point where she, she's brought fully into the family of God. And so I, I think that's important before we even start looking at Ruth is understanding the power of the lineage of the power of what God does through Ruth's life. And so I just don't want you to miss that because it gives me hope that there are always areas that, 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 that I'm never too far from redemption, 
that there's nothing that I can do that, that God would forsake me, that there's never a period in my life where he is not strong enough to redeem. Amen? 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 There they are, my friends. This is good. But let's jump into Ruth chapter one and we'll, we'll, we'll dive in. So here it says, Ruth chapter one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. That's, the man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And his names of his two sons were, were Mahalon and Kilian. And they were Ephraelites. Here, I made this joke in the first service. Whenever you're reading Bible names, if you just read it really fast, everybody thinks you're right. They don't even, like, you can just make it up. All right, from Bethlehem, Judea, and they went to Moab to live here. So just a little context. I want you to get the geography and get the characters here. Israel is next to Jordan. They're in Israel. There's a famine, and they're going to have to go to Jordan, a foreign land, to try to find food. So they're literally leaving the promised land to go to, go to a foreign country um, to, to live and to find food. Um, Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and they have two sons. Okay, you, you tracking with me? Now, why this is partly a big deal is that Moab was on the no-no list. That was on the list of places that God said, do not do. It was on the oh, no-no list. We've all got our own no-no list. That's on the no-no-no list for God. And what that means is that he says this in Deuteronomy. He says this, no Amorite or Moabite of any or, or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. That's a pretty strong statement to how much God dislikes the Moabites. And the reason he does is because when, they were in, when the Israelites were in exile, they were seduced by the Moabite women to follow other gods. And so God's like, that country over there is no good. But Naomi and her husband and the family, they're, they're trying to find food. And so they go to Moab. Now, Elimelech, verse number three, Naomi's husband died and she left um, and she left with her two sons, and she with her two, and she was left with her two sons. Her two sons, they married Moabite women. Not good. One named Orpah, and one other one named Ruth. After they had lived there for about ten years, both sons died, and Naomi was left without her sons and without her husbands. So not only did they go to another uh, the country that they shouldn't have gone to. The sons end up marrying Moabite women who are on the no-no list. So you can see this tension beginning to build in this story of, of this family who's in a foreign land, who've, who've married foreign, foreign people that, were, that, weren't, that they weren't supposed to be doing that. And now the husband and the two sons are dead. So you've got these three widows, which in that time was not, that was not a, uh, if you were a widow, you had no rights basically. Like you, you were left to, 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 to find, like you didn't have rights to the property. You didn't have light. Like if your family had a ton of property and you were a widow, you, you lost all of that. Because all of that was passed down male to male to male to male. So the fact that all of the sons are dead and the husband, they are destitute. They are broke. They have nothing. Um, verse number six. When Naomi heard in Moab, that the Lord had come to aid of his people by providing them food back in Israel, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So now Naomi's saying, we don't have food here. Let's go back to my land. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, 
Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to, um, in your dead death to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept together. And, and they said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who, can, who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Naomi realizes that if she brings these two Amorite women back to Judea, it's not going to go well. Because again, they're on the no-no list. So she's like, she says, you guys are young, stay, stay back here, go back to the house of your mother, maybe you'll get married again sometime, you can marry a good Moabite man, you can got to live your life. But the daughters are having none of it. They want to go with Naomi back to her land. But Naomi sees the challenge that it's going to be. Like it's no small thing for these women to go back to Judea, they have no rights, they have no privileges, they have, and especially as, a, as, a, as Moabites going back to Judea, it's, gonna, it's not going to be good. It's not going to go well. Culturally speaking, that is not, not a good idea. But Ruth says something next to Naomi that's staggering. It's shocking. Listen to this. This is, this is uh, verse number 16. Ruth replied to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And my, your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Again, think about the cultural context. Well, this is why this is such a big deal. Ruth is making some pretty massive statements in this moment to Naomi. Ruth is completely forsaking her own people, forsaking her own family history, forsaking her own family tree, forsaking her own family comfort. Like she could have just stayed in Moab and probably lived a comfortable life, gotten remarried. But she's so dedicated to Naomi and caring for Naomi. She says, your people will become my people. Your God will become my God. Now, the Moabites would have, been, would, would have been a foreign country with lots of gods and lots of things. So, so even for Ruth to do that, she's kind of, for, again, she's forsaking what she knows. She's forsaking her God. She's saying, Naomi, your God is going to be my God. To the point of saying that even in death, death won't even separate our connection to, the, to each other. Which is really interesting for a widow to say that to another widow because in, in, in some ways Ruth is implying that she's, she knows that she's stepping into just a lifelong journey of widowhood. She knows that if she goes back to Bethlehem that there isn't going to be uh, some, uh, there's not going to be an Israelite that wants to marry her because she's remote. So she's committing herself to Ruth, to care for Ruth, despite all of the cultural challenges, despite guaranteeing for herself basically that she's going to be in poverty. So they travel back to Bethlehem. Um, Orpah stays behind. Ruth and Naomi travel, and they get hungry. 
because that's what happens when you travel. Anybody else got little kids? It's like snack time every 15 minutes. It's like, if I hear I'm hungry one more time, help me, Jesus. Okay. Um, so they go back, and there's the field, and, and they start gleaning. So in Ruth and Naomi, or sorry, so Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain left behind um, and see if I can find favor in anyone's eyes. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. As she went out, entered a, she entered a field and began to glean around behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So a couple things real quick. Widows didn't work, they, so they didn't have any of this stuff. So what they would do, God had actually instructed Moses in Leviticus 19 to instruct the people that when it came to harvest time, to not clear cut the fields, but to leave the edges of the fields, to leave the corners of the field, to leave parts of the fields for the widows and orphans that they could come and gather grain so that they would actually have something to eat. So what Ruth is doing is very culturally normative that, that it would be normal to go out into a field during harvest time and you've got the normal harvesters that are taking the, the, best, the best stuff, taking as much as they can, but then they would leave some stuff around the edges and then you would see these widows and orphans that would be on the edges um, collecting for themselves. Now what's interesting is what the story part points out here. As it turns out, it just so happens just what it, it's just a chance thing, you know. Ruth found herself working in the field belonging to a guy named Boaz, don't miss this, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Let's see how good you're paying attention here. Who is Naomi's husband? Elimelech. So they find themselves in a family field. Now, isn't it interesting, though, that even though they're in a family field, they're still not worthy to go out into the middle and start harvesting the good stuff. Even though it's a family field, they still aren't redeemed to the point where they can go out. They have to still stay along the edges, even though it's a family field. Although Boaz is even a part of, of the clan of Elimelech, they're still on the edges. So then, it's like, you know, if there was like some theme music, this is like the part of the love story where like the cool music starts and the dude walks in. Boaz walks into the field and he says, the Lord, I, I don't know why. I mean, I picture this in my head this way. I don't, this is, but I mean, the scripture does say this part, but I'm kind of, this is the part that I'm making up. Like Boaz says, the Lord bless you. I picture him like waving his arms over the field because it's his field and it's harvest time. And he's so excited that it's harvest time. He's like, the Lord bless you. And then what, it's so funny in the story that the reply is from all the people, the Lord bless you. And so they're all excited that Boaz is there. And because um, that's the way a love story goes, I guess. But um, so Boaz shows up and Boaz notices that there's somebody new in the field. So like, just like a good farmer, Boaz knows his field. He would know the people that are kind of around, but he looks and he sees Ruth and he's like, who dat? Who's that right there? So um, the overseer replied. So the overseer, verse, uh, chapter two, verse number six, replies to Boaz. She is a Moabite who came from Moab with Naomi. Stop. Okay. I think it's established by now that Moabites would come from Moab. Just throwing that out there. 
But the overseer is so intent on making sure that Boaz understands who this woman is culturally that he's like, hey, that Moabite who's from Moab came over with Ruth, or came over with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather from the sheaves behind the harvests. She came into the field and she had asked, she'd asked to, to, to take part in the field. She came into the field and was, uh, and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, don't miss this. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the woman, with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the harvesters are working and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And what, whenever you're thirsty, go and drink from the water jugs. Listen, the men have filled. This is a pretty staggering statement for Boaz to do this. He's offering her protection and literally tells her to get a drink from the jars that the men had filled. In that day, if the men would have heard this, they'd have been like, mm, 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 not how this works. But Boaz, he's, he's the one, he's, 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 he's got the power in the situation. He tells her to do that. Verse number 10. At this, watch Ruth's, Ruth's response. She bowed down with her face to the ground and asked him. She recognizes the magnitude of what Boaz has just said to her. And she literally bows down before him and says, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you noticed me, a foreigner? She again is pointing out this, this interesting relationship between uh, the, acknowledging that she's a foreigner. I did a lot of word study on that word. Like I went back to the original language, that word in foreigner. And here's what it means. It means foreigner. So like she, she's really working hard to point out that I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not a part of this. But she's recognizing the authority and the privilege that Ruth has given her or that Boaz has given to her. And she's just kind of, again, probably trying to even give him an out of like, why are you doing this? Like, I'm the foreigner here. Listen to Boaz. This is crazy. Boaz replied, I've been told all about you and what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your husband and your, or how you left your father and your mother and your homeland to come live with a people you didn't know. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth's story of commitment to Naomi is so intense that Boaz has become familiar. Like, like people are chirping about it. People are talking about it. And he's so blown away by Ruth forsaking everything to help Naomi that he gives her a blessing. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done, how you've left your father, how you've left your mother, how you've left everything, how you've left the comfort of your home. May the Lord repay you. And then he gives us this beautiful line. And if, and if, we, and if, you, and if you just take it at face value, it just sounds like a really cool, like, 
maybe like a pickup line that Boaz was trying to throw at Ruth, like, under whose wings you will take refuge. Like, it's just like this really like cute little phrase that he uses. But there's so much meaning behind that phrase. He's not trying to be cute. He's not trying to be funny. Like that would have been a phrase that the Israelites were familiar with. And it was a phrase, it was the same idea of this covering that, that would have, that, the same power that they would have understood as the covenant. That the covenant covers them. We've talked about the covenant for several weeks, like the covenant that God made with his people, made with Abraham, all that kind of stuff. That this was a covenant held by God that could not be broken by man. It's the same phrase that he's saying that under whose wings you may take refuge. He's saying, may God bless you so much that this covering, that you're covered by that same, that same power. It's the same type of a phrase that King David uses later in the Psalms to, to, to explain this covering that God provides. It's so interesting that he would choose that phrase. It just shows you the level of intensity for which he's, he's observing Ruth's care for Naomi. But Boaz doesn't stop there. At mealtime, he said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Like he's inviting a widow who's been working in the field all day to come and have a meal with him. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some toasted grain. She ate all that she wanted and had some left over. As she had got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men again, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Let her gather around the good stuff. Even pull out some of the stalks from the bundles and leave them for her. Hey, the, hey workers, you know the stuff that you've been working hard to harvest and you put in nice little bundles? Actually, you're gonna take some of those out and you're gonna leave them for Ruth to get. Even pull out some of the stalks for her and leave them behind for her to pick up and do not rebuke her. This is a huge deal that this is happening. It's such a big deal, in fact, that when Ruth goes back and tells Naomi, Naomi flips out. She starts worshiping God. She's like, oh my goodness, God's provided, God's provided. And this is a big shift for Naomi because if you remember, Naomi, when she came back to Bethlehem, she was so frustrated with God. She was so frustrated with her life that she literally at that point had changed her name to Mara, which meant bitterness. You are not in a good place mentally if you change your name to bitterness. Like that's not a good headspace to be in. But Naomi sees what this hand of God, and he, she sees that in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her suffering, that God's mighty hand of provision has covered her. And I think we, could, we really could even stop the story here, and that really could be the lesson for today, that even in the midst of our suffering and our pain and our long-suffering and our pain, that God still provides, and he's still walking with us, and that he's still at work on our behalf. Come on, somebody. Like God is still moving and working. And listen to me. I think we need to be reminded of this because especially like, look, I don't need to give you the laundry list of stuff that we've all been through. I'm going to give it a shot. Pandemic. No bueno. Like it's been rough. Job loss, marriage stuff, kids stuff, physical health things. Your business isn't turning out the way that you want. Like your, your college courses, your, the thing you thought you were majoring in isn't what you want to major in, and now you feel like your life is up in the air. Like now it's like there's, there's wars going on. There's wars and rumors of war. 
They're throwing out words like nuclear and, 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 and chemical and these words that were just like, oh, could we just please not use those words? Like, that'd be really great. Like, this is, this, is, this is the time, friends, where we have to have a long view. Listen to me. We have to have a long view of these things and remember that God is constantly working and constantly moving despite our pain, despite our suffering, despite what's right in front of our faces. And this story reminds us that in the midst of that suffering, that God's hand is still good and he still provides. I said it like this in my notes. God's hand of provision and care never grows tired. There is no limit or restraint to his goodness. He's always working. Even though you have grown tired and weary, he has not grown tired and weary. Even though we may be stumbling and falling, he will not stumble and fall. Even though you don't see a path forward at this point, God is still working, God is still moving, and he will provide for your needs. Ruth and Naomi see God's hand. Despite the the brokenness of their situation, besides being hungry and widows and gleaning from a field and not having any rights, God swoops in and uses Boaz and not just provides what they need, but provided more than they could have asked for. Amen? Amen. So let me just remind you. Let me just remind us together, friends. No matter what you feel right now, no matter what pain you're in, no matter what challenge you're up against, anybody else got a lot of junk going on in their life right now besides me? God's still moving. He still sees you. He hasn't left you. His gift in the time of suffering is his nearness. God's gift, listen to me. This is big kid talk. God's gift in the midst of our suffering is his nearness. And as we walk with him, his goodness overtakes us and we see his provision over and over and over again because we understand that he's the God that will provide our every need. Amen? Amen. So Ruth goes back, tells Naomi about God's provision. And Naomi's like, hey, I got this idea. Let's get you a man. And so um, you can laugh at that. It's funny. <laughs> like, like, can we laugh at that? It's like, yeah, you can laugh. It's good. It's good. Um, so Ruth, so Naomi tells Ruth, she says this. She says, wash and perfume yourself and put on the bless, your best clothes. So she's like, Ruth, go take a bath, put some perfume on. Get your clothes on. We're getting you a man. Then go down to the threshing floor, because apparently that's where all the hot dates happen, is the threshing floor. Some of you have been on dates like that. You're like, hey, look, I'm just going to tell you right now. If he takes you to the threshing floor, you can do better than that. God's got more for you than, than him taking, like, listen to me, daughter of God. You're worth more than that. Like, I'm not saying you got to go to like St. Elmo's the first time out of the gate, but like, you're more valuable than that. Okay. This is a train wreck. Okay. This is good. Wash and perfume yourself. Go down, put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he goes and then go uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. Verse number seven, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile 
But Ruth approached him quietly, uncovered his feet, and in the middle of the night, um, something startled the man. It's probably the woman laying at his feet. That's probably what startled him. <laughs> Out of all the ways to write that, I'm like, why did they write it like that? It's like, you're asleep. Of course that's what. And there was a woman lying at his feet. Like, that would be scary. Okay. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a family guardian. Okay. We got we to we dig into this a little bit because this is, this is some big phrases here. This is, not, this is nothing sexual. This is nothing like that. This is, this is what Ruth is saying. She says, spread your corner of your garment over me. This is the exact same phrase and language that Boaz had used when he said, you remember when we talked about that covering, the, the wings that cover? She's using that saying, would you cover us with your protection? And she offers him a solution of how to do that. And it's to be him to exercise his right as this family guardian, this kinsman redeemer. There was this practice back then, because again, widows didn't have rights. They had to be redeemed by a kinsman redeemer back into the family. They had to have someone act on their behalf. When they had no hope, when they had no power, when they had no way to save, them, save themselves, someone had to act on their behalf to offer them full redemption. This is what Ruth is asking Boaz for. It's a bold ask. But to really understand this idea of kinsman and redeemer, we've got to understand there's, th- there's three kind of things that, that make that possible. First one is this. The kinsman redeemer had to have a shared bloodline. So the fact, again, remember we talked about this. Bo- uh, Boaz was from the, the clan of Elimelech. So there's this bloodline that's established. If, if you don't have bloodline, kinsman, the redemption can't happen. There has to be a bloodline. There has to be shared bloodline. So, so the fact that as it turns out, they ended up in Boaz's field is, is, is a pretty huge financial or pretty huge provision of God in that. And that that bloodline is there actually provides step one that redemption can actually happen. The second thing is this, that they must have the resources and power to redeem. So Boaz actually has to have some level of resource to actually be able to purchase this redemption. That redemption actually costs something. And Boaz has to be able to get that redemption, uh, have the power and the resources for that redemption to happen. And the third thing is this. The redeemer must be willing to take on the full burden of those that they redeem. For the redemption to take full effect, they have to be willing to invite that family into their, invite, invite that, uh, that widow um, into their family and give them full rights and full privilege of what it means to be back in that family. They've got to be willing to take that burden on and take, take the family on. So, Ruth, uh, so, so Boaz says to Ruth, yep, I'm in. I'll do it. I'll redeem you. But he says there's some, but, but he learned that there was someone else in the family that could actually be, step into that person's place and be that redeemer. So he waits out, you know, he, they go to sleep, they wake up the next day. Boaz goes to the gate, waits for that person to come by. The person comes by and he says, hey, Naomi's back. Naomi need, needs a kinsman redeemer. You know, Elimelech's her husband. They got all this land. Would you want to redeem him? And the guy's like, yep, I'll do it. And he says, hey, and the Boaz says, hey, there's one more thing. There's this uh, Ruth. She's a Moabite. I don't know if you heard she's a Moabite, but Ruth She's a Moabite. I'm sure it's cool. It's all good. But Ruth's a Moabite, and you'll have to take Ruth in as well. And the guy is like, nope, because he, he knows the law. He's like, I'm not, I'm not touching anything that has to do with the Moabite. And so he, he, he doesn't 
do the redemption, but Boaz is, stays committed to that, and Boaz takes off his sandals, which was the custom, and fully redeems Ruth, not only Naomi, but Ruth, and offers them full redemption, full provision, and full stock back into the family. What Ruth, what Naomi had fully lost, she fully gets redeemed and restored in. Does that sound familiar to anything that we go through? I mean, does that sound familiar to what Jesus has done for us? That we're left with no hope, with no way forward, with no way to make our relationship with God right? That in our sin, we're broken? That we don't have a way to get back to God, but we needed somebody to step into our place who, who was of our bloodline, who had the power to do it, who had the resources to do it, that would be willing to pay the price for our redemption? I love this in Romans chapter 5. It says this, God proves his love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to the sequence of that verse. God proves his love for us in this way. God demonstrates his love for us. He shows us his love for us. He demonstrates his love for us. How? That while we were still sinners, while we were still hopeless, while we were still broken, while we still had no way, what did he do? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That he offered us redemption when we could not redeem ourselves. Christ is our kinsman redeemer, friends. Christ is the one that steps into our place to offer us redemption. Don't miss this. Jesus Jesus took on, you know, what were the three things of a a kinsman redeemer? One, they had to have the bloodline. Jesus took on flesh. He took on humanity. Check this out in Philippians chapter two. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of the servant, a servant. Being made in human likeness, he found in the appearance as a human being, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God found it so fit that he made himself man. God, Jesus became man, took on flesh, and died in our place to die a fully human death. Even right now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, not in an earth suit. He's literally sitting at the right hand of God, fully God, fully man, which gives us hope for full redemption and a bodily resurrection, friends. Don't miss how important that is. That Jesus didn't go halfway. That he offers us full and complete redemption. The other thing is he had to have the resources and the power. Jesus had to be able to beat hell, death, and the grave. It's so intense, in fact, that it says that Jesus took the keys of hell, death, and the grave away from Satan. That that Jesus took the keys to Satan's house. He, He has the keys now. He's the one that holds the power and the authority. That Jesus filled the gap for us. And that he would be willing, the last thing, he'd be willing to take on the burden of us. That he, that he was willing to pay the price for us. That he was willing to step in a place where we had no way forward. Jesus steps in as our kinsman redeemer and pays the price for us to walk with him and to have eternal life with him. This is no small thing. Redemption can't be earned. It can only be received. Listen to me. Redemption can't be earned. It can only be received. 
You can't earn your way into heaven. You can't best your way into heaven. You can't live right enough to get your way into heaven. The only way is for you to put your trust in our our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, and say, God, I can't do this of any other way but through Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. Redemption can't be earned. It can only be received. Do you need to receive that redemption today, friends? Band, if you guys want to come on up. Do you, do, you, do you need that redemption today? Maybe you've been striving and pushing and, and trying to work your way into heaven. Maybe, maybe you've been saying, man, if I could just, if I could just live this, this really good way, or if I could just grow my business this, or if I could just love my family this, or it's like, no, no, no. There's only one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. Acknowledging him as the Lord and Savior of your life. The one who paid the ultimate price. The one who makes a way where there is no way. We can't earn redemption, friends, but we can receive it from him. So we're going to pray here for a second. I'm just going to give you a minute to reflect. Maybe for you today, today you just needed to be reminded that God's hand of provision is always going to be with you that you're filling up against the ropes and you just need to ask God for, for fresh awareness of his presence and fresh provision today. Maybe for you, you've, you've kind of fallen to this rut of feeling like you just need to earn your way into heaven. Maybe for you, you've never actually, you've never actually considered that Jesus is the Lord of all, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and that he actually is the one that steps into your place and redeems. I just, I'm going to pray over us and I just want to give you a second to reflect on that and just ask the Lord to speak to you. You tell him what you need. He's listening. But let's just take a moment and pray together. Can we bow our heads? Can we just pray here for a minute? Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd speak. Remind us freshly today of what it looks to be redeemed. That you are our kinsman redeemer, Lord. Jesus, that you stepped into my place. I deserve death, Lord. I deserved separation from you, but you stepped in, Father, and made a way. God, I just pray a blessing over anyone in this room today that doesn't know you and they want to take that step of putting their faith in you. Even now at your seat, you you just pray, say, Lord, I confess with my mouth that you are Lord. I believe in my heart that you've redeemed me. Forgive me. Save me. Redeem me. You're my Lord. Father, we give you today. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your nearness. And we thank you for your redemption, Jesus. Amen.